Chapter 8 To Tell or Not to Tell The Politics of Secrecy and Revelation A truth that's told with bad intent beats all the lies you can invent. William Blake, Auguries of Innocence Secrets and lies emerge in my office in all shades. Often, a couple arrives with an affair freshly exposed, a raw wound that cannot be ignored. But others sit on my couch with a secret between them, obvious to me, but unmentioned. Neither partner wants to tell or find out. I've also sat in countless sessions where one person asks the other, Are you having an affair? And it's flat out denied, even though the inquirer has irrefutable proof. Sometimes the unfaithful partner will drop hint upon hint, but the spouse does not seem to want to connect the dots. Other times, the suspicious one is hot on the trail with a damning dossier of evidence in hand, but waiting for the right moment to confront. I've seen the full spectrum of dishonesty, from simple omissions to partial truths and white lies to blatant obfuscation and mental hijacking. I've seen secrecy in its cruel version and its benevolent one. Some lie to protect themselves. Others lie to protect their partners. And then there is the ironic role reversal where the betrayed ends up lying to protect the one who deceived them. The twists and tangles of lying are endless. Many unfaithful spouses tell me that their love affairs represent the first time they've stopped lying to themselves. Paradoxically, while engaged in a relationship built on deceit, they often feel that for the first time they are touching truth, connecting with something more essential, authentic and sincere than their so-called real life. During her two-year affair with the owner of the local bike shop, Megan got tired of hiding from everyone around her. But after having ended the double life, she now feels worse. Now I'm lying inwardly. I'm deluding myself, pretending it's okay to live without him. It's not just couples who struggle with issues of secrecy. Secrets litter the social landscape of infidelity. A woman borrows her married friend's phone and finds flirty texts from an unknown man. A mother knows her son wasn't with her last Saturday, as he told his wife but isn't sure she wants to know where he actually was. And of course, there is the other woman and the other man. They don't just have a secret, they are the secret. Secrets and lies are at the heart of every affair and they heighten both the excitement of the lovers and the pain of the betrayed. They throw us into a web of quandaries. Must they be revealed? And if so, how? Revelation lies on a continuum from don't ask, don't tell to a detailed post-mortem autopsy. Honesty requires careful calibration. Is there such a thing as too much? Is it ever better to keep the affair concealed? What about the old saying that what you don't know can't hurt you? For some, the answer is simple. Secrecy is lying, lying is wrong. The only acceptable course of action is confession, complete transparency, repentance, and punishment. 
The dominant view seems to be that revelation is the sine qua non for restoring intimacy and trust after an affair. Lying these days is seen as a human rights violation. We all deserve the truth, and there is no circumstance where withholding it can be justified. I wish it were so simple that we could use such categorical principles to neatly organize our messy human lives. But therapists don't work with principles. They work with real people and real-life situations. Dilemmas of Disclosure This grad student has been sleeping with is pregnant and she's determined to have the baby, says Jeremy, a college professor who thought he was doing a good job of keeping his fling strictly casual. I have no intention of ruining my marriage, but I don't want my child to grow up as a secret. A guy I hooked up with just told me he has herpes, says Lou, looking embarrassed. My boyfriend is at risk. Do I have to tell him? The girl I fooled around with tagged me in a picture on Instagram after I told her I could no longer see her, says Annie. We only kissed, but my girlfriend won't see it that way. She's been checking my social media obsessively. She's bound to see the picture. Many of you may conclude that in such situations the right decision is disclosure. But not all situations are so clear-cut. It was a momentary lapse in judgment. I was drunk, and I deeply regret it, says Lena, who'd been engaged only a few months when a night of partying after a college reunion ended in a nexus bed. If I tell my fiancé, I know it will destroy him. His first wife left with his best friend and he always said if I cheated on him, it was over. Yes, she should have thought of that before, but should her slip-up derail their whole life? Why would I tell my wife, Yuri asks. Since I met Anat, we don't fight about sex anymore. I don't beg her and I don't bug her and my family is doing well. In an act of defiance, Holly has fallen madly in love with a fellow Yorkie owner she met at a dog park. She'd like nothing more than to tell her nasty, controlling husband. It would serve him right. But the price of honesty would be high. With the prenup that he made me sign, I'd lose the kids. Nancy's ongoing flirtation with the dad at her son's football games reignited her long-dormant sensuality. I feel gratitude for the awakening of that part of me that is not just mother, wife, or servant. I feel even more gratitude that I didn't act on it, she says. Her husband is delighted with her newfound erotic energy, but she's wondering, does she have to tell him about her affair of the mind? Nancy is of the firm belief that honesty means complete transparency. In circumstances like these, might it be wiser for the involved partner to stay quiet and to handle matters alone? Truth can be healing, and sometimes fessing up is the only appropriate response. When counseling her patients about the wisdom of truth-telling, my colleague Lisa Spiegel uses a simple and effective formula. Ask yourself, is it honest, is it helpful, and is it kind? Truth can also be irrevocably destructive and even aggressive, delivered with sadistic pleasure. On more than one occasion, I've seen honesty do more harm than good, leaving me to ask, can lying sometimes be protective? To many, this notion seems unfathomable. 
But then again, I've also heard informed spouses scream, I wish you'd never told me. At a training for therapists, a participant working in hospice care asked me for advice. What can I say to the terminally ill patient who wants to confess to his wife a lifetime of infidelity before he dies? I replied. While I understand that to him, coming clean after all these years may seem like a genuine expression of deep love and respect, he needs to know that he may die in relief, but she will live in turmoil. While he's resting in peace, she'll be tossing and turning, sleepless for months as she replays movies in her head that are probably far more torrid than the affairs ever were. Is that the legacy he wants to leave? Sometimes, silence is caring. Before you unload your guilt onto an unsuspecting partner, consider whose well-being are you really thinking of. Is your soul cleansing as selfless as it appears? And what is your partner supposed to do with this information? I've seen the other side of this situation in my office, where I've tried to help a widow deal with the double bereavement of losing her husband to cancer and losing her image of their happy marriage to his deathbed confessions. Respect is not necessarily about telling all, but about considering what it will be like for the other to receive the knowledge. When exploring the pros and cons of revelation, don't think just in either-or terms or in the abstract, but try to imagine yourself in the actual situation with the other person. Enact the conversation. Where are you? What do you say? What do you read on the other person's face? How do they respond? The question to tell or not to tell becomes even weightier when social norms render people particularly vulnerable. As long as there are countries in the world where women only suspected of glancing elsewhere can be stoned and burned alive, or where homosexuals can be barred from seeing their own children, honesty and transparency should always be thought of in context and on a case-by-case basis. Should therapists keep secrets? Therapists working with infidelity must grapple with the thorny issue of secrets. The conventional approach stipulates that clinicians in couples therapy cannot keep things under wraps and that in order for therapy to be productive, the unfaithful must end the affair or come clean. Otherwise, they are to be referred to individual therapy. I often hear American colleagues say that there is nothing you can do with a secret in the middle of the room. Interestingly, my international counterparts say something quite different. There's a lot you can do so long as the secret is not revealed. Once you have raised the curtain, there is no going back. They caution against gratuitous revelation, citing the unnecessary pain inflicted on one's partner and the harm to the relationship. In recent years, a small minority of therapists, including Janice Abrams Spring and Michelle Shankman, have begun to challenge the American orthodoxy around secrets, finding the traditional approach to be unhelpful, limiting, and even damaging. I have chosen to adopt what Spring calls an open secrets policy. 
When I first meet a couple, I let them know that I will see them apart as well as together, and our individual sessions are confidential. Each is guaranteed a private space to work through their issues. Both people have to sign off on this. Like spring, I see the decision to reveal or not to reveal as part of the therapy itself, not as a precondition for therapy. This approach is not without its complications, and I constantly grapple with it. I have on occasion had to answer yes to the question, did you know all along, when a partner finds out that they have been deceived. While this situation is painful for all involved, it is not an ethical breach under the terms of our agreement. And for the time being, I find it to be the more productive stance. As Shankman writes, a no-secrets policy holds the therapist hostage, unable to help in possibly one of the most critical moments in a couple's relationship. This policy does not apply just to affairs. In fact, the turning point for me was a session in which a woman told me that for the past 20 years, she couldn't wait for sex with her husband to be over. She didn't like his smell and faked her orgasms. Knowing that this wouldn't change and not considering it a marital deal-breaker, she didn't see the point of telling him. I was willing to proceed with therapy, cognizant of her pretense. So I had to ask myself, how is this secret fundamentally different from others? Was it any less grave than a clandestine affair? Would her husband be less hurt to learn that she had been lying to him all along than to learn she was sleeping with someone else? Should I insist that she reveal her distaste in order for us to continue therapy? Sexual secrets come in many forms. Yet therapists tend to struggle more with lies about extramarital sex than with decades of lying about intramarital sex. We hold many confidences without experiencing an ethical conflict. Infidelity may not always take the gold medal in the hierarchy of essential disclosures. Truth-telling in many languages We live in a culture whose messages about secrecy are truly confounding, writes Evan Imber Black in her book The Secret Life of Families. If cultural norms once made shameful secrets out of too many events in human life, we are now struggling with the reverse. The assumption that telling secrets, no matter how, when, or to whom, is morally superior to keeping them and that it is automatically healing. To understand America's views on secrecy and truth-telling, we need to examine the current definition of intimacy. Modern intimacy is bathed in self-disclosure, the trustful sharing of our most personal and private material, our feelings. From an early age, our best friend is the one to whom we tell our secrets. And since our partner today is assumed to be our best friend, we believe I should be able to tell you anything. And I have a right to immediate and constant access to your thoughts and feelings. This entitlement to know and the assumption that knowing equals closeness is a feature of modern love. 
Ours is a culture that reveres the ethos of absolute frankness and elevates truth-telling to moral perfection. Other cultures believe that when everything is out in the open and ambiguity is done away with, it may not increase intimacy, but compromise it. As a cultural hybrid, I practice in many languages. In the realm of communication, many of my American patients prefer explicit meanings, candor, and plain speech over opaqueness and illusion. My patients from West Africa, the Philippines, and Belgium are more likely to linger in ambiguity than to opt for stark revelation. They seek the detours rather than the direct route. As we consider these contrasts, we also have to take into account the difference between privacy and secrecy. As psychiatrist Stephen Levine explains, privacy is a functional boundary that we agree on by social convention. There are matters that we know exist, but choose not to discuss, like menstruation, masturbation, or fantasies. Secrets are matters we will deliberately mislead others about. The same erotic longings and temptations that are private in one couple are a secret in another. In some cultures, infidelity is commonly treated as a private matter, at least for men. But in our culture, it is usually a secret. It is almost impossible to discuss cultural differences without taking a moment to observe America's favorite point of sexual comparison, les Français. Deborah Olivier describes how the French favor the implicit over the explicit, the subtext over context, discretion over indiscretion, and the hidden over the obvious. In that, they're exactly the opposite of Americans. Pamela Druckerman, a journalist who interviewed people around the globe for her book Lost in Translation, expands on how these predilections shape French attitudes about infidelity. Discretion seems to be the cornerstone of adultery in France, she writes, noting that many of the people she spoke with seem to prefer not to tell and not to know. French affairs can seem like Cold War conflicts in which neither side ever draws its guns. Back at a ranch, the guns are blazing. While Americans have little tolerance for extramarital sex, deception is often condemned more harshly than the transgression it seeks to conceal. The hiding, the dissimulation, and all the tall tales are the main ingredients of the affront and are seen as a fundamental lack of respect. The implication is that we only lie to those beneath us. Children, constituents, and employees. Hence, the refrain echoes from private bedrooms to public hearings. It's not that you cheated, it's that you lied to me. But would we really feel better if our partners gave us advance notice of their indiscretions? Translating Secrets Amira, a 33-year-old Pakistani-American social work grad student, still vividly remembers the day she began to unravel her father's secret. Dad was teaching me to drive. He had this weird Japanese trinket hanging from his rearview mirror. One day, I tried to take it down, but he stopped me. 
and told me it was a gift from Yumi, his secretary. That name came back to me immediately seven years later when Dad asked me to look for an address in his phone and I found a string of texts from someone called Y. Then I knew. Does he know that you know? I ask her. She shakes her head. Will you ever tell him? What I really want to tell him is learn to delete your text messages. Maybe one day I'll show him how. I just wish he had covered his tracks. I don't like feeling complicit in his deception of my mother. Have you considered telling her? I inquire. Immediately she says no. A second-generation immigrant whose parents came to America before she was born, Amira has a foot in two worlds. She knows her silence is unconventional here. My American friends would have gone immediately to their mothers. They would see exposing the secret as the right and caring thing to do. But while she went to school in suburban Kansas, when it comes to family matters, Amira's code is rooted in Karachi. Yes, we value honesty and trust, she says, but we value the preservation of the family even more. Amira's decision came almost as a given. Here's how the logic went. If I tell her, what then? Break up the home? Divide all that we've worked to build? Conduct ourselves like Americans impulsively and selfishly and end up spending weekends with one parent and weekdays with another? She did feel anger and resentment on her mother's behalf. But my parents love each other, she adds. And you should know, they were an arranged marriage. I know that my mother is massively uncomfortable with the topic of sex, but it's not like my father is much better. My gut told me that he chose the path that allowed our family to stay together. Maybe my mother would rather not be bothered. It felt fair, so I was able to make peace with it. Besides this one stain, dad is the most upstanding father, husband, and citizen. Why would I want to ruin all these great things about him? What about the disrespect to your mother, I ask? The way I see it, my father considered it to be most respectful to not shake the core of our family by being open with us about something that we couldn't weather. And as for me, I found it to be most respectful to keep whatever facts I came across to myself. I wouldn't dare shame my parents by thrusting this truth into the daylight. For what? So that we can be honest? Clearly, the conviction that telling the truth is a mark of respect isn't universal. In many cultures, respect is more likely expressed with gentle untruths that aim at preserving face and peace of mind. This protective opacity is seen as preferable to disclosure that might result in public humiliation. Amira's reasoning is part of a long-standing cultural legacy that extends beyond Pakistan to all family-oriented societies. Her framework is a collectivist one, where family loyalty mandates compromising around infidelity and secrets. Of course, we could look at her situation through the lens of gender politics and see her elucidations as a sad but ingenious apology for patriarchy. 
Furthermore, we cannot afford to minimize the damaging effects that secret-keeping may have on children. As my colleague Harriet Lerner highlights, secrecy puts a crack in the foundation of the relationship with both parents and operates like an underground river of confusion and pain that affects everything. It not infrequently leads to symptomatic behavior and acting out by kids and teens who are then put in therapy where the real source of anxiety and distress is never identified. But is Amira's choice any more distressing than that of her fellow student Marnie? The 24-year-old New Yorker is still haunted by the day she grabbed her mother's secret phone and threw it down the stairs into her father's hands. He deserved to know she was cheating. Marnie had known about her mom's affair with the chiropractor for several years. She used to hide her secret phone in the laundry hamper and would spend hours doing ironing. Yeah, right. She wasn't that domestically inclined. On that fateful day, my mom started crying frantically and saying, Oh my God, what did you do? What did you do? My world came crashing down in a matter of hours. Now, our family is completely splintered. No more dinner for four at TGI Fridays. No more big family parties on holidays. The last time I saw my mom and dad in a room together, I was 15. Marnie still agonizes over the painful and irreversible consequences of the tumbling phone, but it would never occur to her to question the moral platform from which she threw it. Her value system, while dramatically different from Amira's, is just as instinctive. In her individualistic framework, the personal right to know trumps the harmony of the family. For Marnie, lying is categorically wrong. For Amira, it depends on the particular situation. I have often witnessed the tension between these two worldviews. One accuses the other of duplicity and lack of transparency. The other is repelled by the destructive spilling of secrets in the name of honesty. One is shocked by the distance that the other seems to establish between men and women. The other sees unvarnished directness as damaging to love and antithetical to desire. Collectivist and individualistic cultures both manage the overt and the covert with pros and cons on all sides. Since we tend to get stuck within our own paradigm, it is instructive to know how a neighbor from another country addresses the same situation with a very different ethical and relational logic. That said, in our global world, many of us are children of multiple cultures, and these dialogues take place within our own hearts and minds. What to tell, what not to tell. The disclosive dilemmas do not end when an affair is revealed. At every step, the questions continue to arise. What to confess, how much, and how to do it. Furthermore, what we tell others depends on what we are willing to admit to ourselves. Very few people I meet are lying to their loved ones in cold blood. More often than not, they have constructed elaborate scaffolds to legitimize their actions, otherwise known as rationalizations. The tendency toward infidelity depends to a great extent on being able to justify it to ourselves. 
writes behavioral economics expert Dan Ariely. We all want to be able to look in the mirror and feel good about the person we see, he explains. But we also want to do things that we know aren't quite honest. So we internally rationalize our various forms of cheating in order to maintain a positive self-image. An ethical sleight of hand that Ariely calls the fudge factor. When dealing with the fallout of infidelity, it's important to unpack these rationalizations. Otherwise, we risk simply dumping them on our partner in the name of truth. Kathleen had her antennae out for years, but when she could no longer tolerate her husband Don's emotional and sexual absence, she took a closer look at his iPad. Her suspicions confirmed she now wants the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Don has come to meet me for advice on how to answer her questions. A youthful 60-something Chicago native, Don grew up poor, with a father who struggled to keep a job and a much-revered mother who managed two jobs. He's worked hard to create a life of comfort and refinement and has dedicated himself to serving his constituency as a community leader. Kathleen is his second wife. They have been married 22 years. From the moment Don comes into my office, it is clear that this is a man with deep contradictions. He loves his wife, has always been devoted to her, but he has never been faithful to her. To begin, I ask him to bring me up to speed. Kathleen is aware of his two mistresses, Lydia and Cheryl. She also knows that they have been in his life for decades, conveniently located on opposite coasts at a safe distance from his family home. As he lays out the logistics of his triple life, I sense a slight irritation with the fact that he was discovered. After all, he had handled his triptych with such care and discretion. The pleasure of his affairs, he admits, was the sense of control it gave him where he had a personal world that eluded the eyes of society. Now Kathleen knows the basic facts. What she's asking him is, why did this happen? So what will you tell her, I ask? Well, the truth is, I had these other women because I wasn't getting satisfying intimacy at home. Of the hundreds of truths he hasn't told his wife, this is the one he chooses to start with? Clearly, we've got some work to do. I ask Don to consider how that will make her feel. And more important, is it even as true as he believes it to be? Or is this simply one of his rationalizations? Do you really think that if you had better sex with your wife, you wouldn't have your mistresses? I ask, semi-rhetorically. I do, he insists. He tells me a long, involved story about menopause, hormones, her increased self-consciousness, his difficulty sustaining erections. With his ladies, he has no such trouble. That doesn't surprise me in the least. But before he goes telling his wife that he did this because something was missing with her, he needs to ask himself, to what extent was he missing in action? I suspect that if I were to ask Kathleen, she would probably agree that, given his long-standing emotional retreat, it's little surprise that their sex life became dull and unimaginative. Don looks uncomfortable, 
so I press ahead. Imagination, that's the key word here. With your affairs, the arousal starts on your flight over there. You don't need the blue pill because what turns you on is the plot, the planning, the carefully chosen clothes. All the anticipation is what fuels the desire. When you come home and the first thing you do is take off your nice clothes and put on old sweatpants, nobody's going to get turned on. Don seems a little taken aback at my bluntness, but he's listening attentively. He's by no means the first man or woman to come to me to carp about sexual ennui at home. I don't deny the erotically muting effects of domesticity, but sex with his wife stands no chance when all his energy is devoted to his wanderings. Rather than blaming the lackluster sex at home for his affairs, maybe he should fold the affairs for the sexual dullness with his wife. Furthermore, He's been roaming for a very long time, in his first marriage and in every relationship since. This isn't about hormones, age, or arousal. It's about him. Do you see now that what you wanted to say to your wife is anything but true? These are your rationalizations, stories you've told to yourself to justify continuing to do what you want. Now, let's try to find something more honest to tell her. In the course of our conversations, I get to know and like Don. He is not a Don Juan who revels in the conquest. It seems strange to say, but he is a man with a genuine love and respect for women. They raised him and they shaped him. His mother, his sisters, his aunts, his mentors. As a teenager and as a boy, he lacked confidence, acutely aware of his poor education and humble beginnings. He figured out that one of the ways to feel more manly was by surrounding himself with strong, accomplished women. Both his long-term loves have advanced degrees, as does his wife, are age-appropriate, have had children of their own and are not looking for more. A perfect fit since he's always been clear with them that he will never leave his wife. He's careful, respectful, and loyal. Some would call him a true gentleman. Did they know about each other, I ask him. He admits that Mistress One knows about Mistress Two, but Mistress Two only knows about the wife. And he promised Mistress One that he'd stop sleeping with Mistress Two a promise he did not keep. Meanwhile, he told both of them the same half-truth he told me, that his sexual needs are not met at home. Slowly, as we unravel the intricate web of his affairs, he realizes that he's been lying to all three. Living in triplicate has taken a tremendous toll. In the early days, Don had a life with a little secret on the side. But as time wore on, the obfuscation increasingly structured his entire life. Secrets have a tendency to mushroom. You can't tell your partner where you were between six and eight because then you may have to tell her where you were between four and five. You think you're keeping it all together, but in fact, you are becoming more fragmented. As his pieces come back together into a cohesive whole, Don is less dissociated and has become more open, both with himself and with his wife. What else has Kathleen been asking, I inquire? 
I've promised her that I will never do this again, but she asks me, what will stop you if you have the opportunity? I've told her that I won't do it again because I know that if she were to find out, there would be no hope of repairing our relationship. Don is emphasizing the fear of getting caught. It's honest, but there's more. What would happen if he were actually straight with Kathleen about the fact that he's not by nature a one-woman guy? He looks surprised at the idea. No, I've never said that. I was always fearful of what her reaction would be. I think she would say she didn't sign up for that. Fair enough. And I'm not suggesting you impose a harem on her. But the point is, she didn't sign up for the lying either. You never gave her a choice. By definition, if you go behind someone's back, you're acting in a unilateral fashion. Don's surprise is giving way to relief. I love my wife, but I also love other women. That's who I've always been. Just to admit that is so helpful. I've never said any of that, not to Kathleen, not even to myself. Now we are reaching a new level of truth. So often, in the wake of an infidelity, I hear repentant partners promise never to be attracted to another again. This simply engenders more fibs. It would be more realistic to say, yes, I may feel attractions, but because I love you and I respect you and I don't want to hurt you again, I will choose not to act on it. That's a more honest and more trustworthy statement. Now that we are clear on what Don wants to tell his wife, we turn our attention to how. I suggest that he begin with a letter, handwritten, because it's more personal that way, and hand-delivered. The goal is threefold. First, take responsibility for his hurtful behavior. In particular, the way he rationed his closeness by giving her only a fragment of his divided self. Second, be vulnerable with her about his own proclivities and how for years he justified it to himself at her expense. And third, pour out his love for her and fight for their relationship. Over the years, I have come to find love letters a lot more conducive to healing than the more common therapeutic practice of having the unfaithful partner create an exhaustive inventory of offenses, hotels, dates, trips, gifts. I thought that Don needed to acknowledge that he was a master of deception. I didn't think it would help his wife to know the details of every lie. When Don returns the following week, he tells me that Kathleen was moved by the effort and sincerity he had put in his letter, but also was cautious, wanting to believe, but afraid to trust. I am hopeful for this couple. Despite granting himself hidden and selfish privileges, Don always loved his wife. From the very first session, I could hear it in the way he spoke about her, with reverence, fondness, and admiration. Kathleen was deeply hurt, but Don's hidden lives had not fractured her love and regard for him, or her respect for herself. She was determined not to let the crisis rewrite their whole history. Over the next few months, I guide Don as he ends his long-standing relationships with Cheryl and Lydia with as much care and integrity as possible, 
and continues to rebuild his connection with his wife. More than once, he succumbs to the knee-jerk response to lie when Kathleen asks about his comings and goings. This bad habit is going to take some hard work to break, but he is committed to the task. And every time he gives her a straight answer, he is amazed by the simplicity of the transaction. Their ordeal is not over, but I have a sense they will come out of this crisis stronger and closer. How much do you want to know? I work on both sides of the dishonesty divide, coaching habitual liars like Don, but also counseling those who have been deceived. We commonly assume that people want to know everything, and we are quick to judge the self-delusion of those who opt for voluntary ignorance. Carol has always known her husband is an alcoholic. What she didn't know until now is that he liked to mix his drinks with escorts. While contemplating her options, she tells me that she's not sure she wants to know more. That's your choice, I tell her. It's okay if you don't want to know all the details. Let him carry the burden of that knowledge and take responsibility for figuring out who he wants to be as a man, as a person. Others feel a need to gorge themselves on detail. In an effort to protect them from information overload, I remind them that once we know, we have to deal with the consequences of knowing. I often ask, do you really want the answer to your question? Or do you want your partner to know that you have the question? I make a distinction between two kinds of inquiry. The detective questions, which mind the sordid details, and the investigative questions, which mind the meanings and the motives. Detective questions include, how many times did you sleep with him? Did you do it in our bed? Does she scream when she comes? How old did you say she was? Did you suck his cock? Was she shaved? Did she let you do anal? Detective questions add further scarring and are often re-traumatizing, inviting comparisons in which you are always the loser. Yes, you need to know if he protected himself or if you should get tested. You need to know if you should worry about your bank account. But maybe you don't need to know if she was blonde or brunette if her breasts were real, if he had a bigger penis. The interrogations, the injunctions, and even the forensic evidence fail to assuage your fundamental fears. Moreover, they make reconciliation much more difficult. And if you choose to separate, they will be fodder for the legal proceedings. Another line of inquiry may be more conducive to rebuilding trust. Investigative questions recognize that the truth often lies beyond the facts. They include, Help me understand what the affair has meant for you. Were you looking for it? Or did it just happen? Why now? What was it like when you would come home? What did you experience there that you don't have with me? Did you feel entitled to your affair? Did you want me to find out? Would you have ended it if I hadn't found out? Are you relieved it's all in the open, or would you have preferred if it stayed hush-hush? Were you trying to leave me? Do you think that you should be forgiven? 
Would you respect me less if I were to forgive you? Did you hope I would leave so you wouldn't have to feel responsible for breaking up the family? The investigative approach asks more enlightening questions that probe the meaning of the affair and focuses on analysis rather than facts. Sometimes we ask one question while the real question hides behind it. What kind of sex did you have with him? is often a stand-in for, don't you like the sex we have? What you want to know is legitimate, but how you go about asking it makes all the difference to your peace of mind. My colleague Stephen Andreas suggests that to transform a detective into an investigative question, it is helpful to ask yourself, if I knew all the answers to all my questions, what would that do for me? This can bring you to a more useful line of inquiry that respects the intent of the original question, but avoids the pitfalls of unnecessary information. My patient Marcus feels that to trust again he needs to know everything. He's obsessively grilling Pavel to give him a precise account of his grinder activities. I ask you a question, I want an answer. While I understand Marcus's need to reorient himself, I suggest that this scavenger hunt, rather than being reassuring, is likely to trigger more rage, less intimacy, and more policing. It is only reasonable in the immediate aftermath for couples to agree on certain limits to preserve peace of mind. For example, ceasing to see and communicate with the affair partner, or coming right home after work rather than stopping at the bar. But too often, there is an assumption that a cheater has forfeited all rights to privacy. In the digital age, in the name of rebuilding trust, it is often common for a duped partner to demand access to cell phones, email passwords, social media logins, and so on. Psychologist and author Marty Klein points out that rather than enhancing trust, this actually thwarts it. You can't prevent someone from betraying you again. They either choose to be faithful or they don't. If they want to be unfaithful, all the monitoring in the world won't stop them. Trust and truth are intimate companions, but we must also acknowledge that there are many kinds of truth. What are the useful truths for us as individuals and as couples in light of the choices we are likely to make? Some kinds of knowledge bring clarity. Others just give us visions to torture ourselves with. Steering our questions toward what the affair means, the longings, the fears, the lusts, the hopes, offers an alternative role to that of the victim-turned-police officer. Authentic curiosity creates a bridge, a first step toward renewed intimacy. We become collaborators in understanding and mending. Affairs are solo enterprises. Making meaning is a joint venture. Part 3. Meanings and Motives Chapter 9. Even Happy People Cheat Mining the Meanings of Affairs Sometimes I can feel my bones straining under the weight of all the lives I'm not living. Jonathan Safran Foer, 
extremely loud and incredibly close. Sex trades on the thrill of discovering over and over again that we are unknown to ourselves. What makes for adventure is not only the novelty of the other, although that helps, but the otherness of the self. Virginia Goldner, Ironic Gender, Authentic Sex What if the affair had nothing to do with you? That question often seems ludicrous to a partner who has been cast aside for a secret lover, lied to, two-timed by their one and only. Intimate betrayal feels intensely personal, a direct attack in the most vulnerable place. However, looking through the lens of the damage it caused the aggrieved partner, we see only one side of the story. Cheating is what they did to their partner. But what were they doing for themselves, and why? Holding the dual perspective, the meaning and the consequences, is a central part of my work. Phase one focuses primarily on the what, the crisis, the fallout, the hurt, and the duplicity. Phase two turns to the why, the meaning, the motives, the demons, the experience on its own terms. Listening to these revelations with an open mind is an essential part of the recovery process for all parties involved. Why do people stray is a question I have been asking continuously for the past few years. Whereas in literature we are invited to eavesdrop on the complex yearnings of married miscreants, in my field their motives tend to be reduced to one of two options. Either there is a problem with the marriage, or there is a problem with the individual. Hence, as Michel Shankman has pointed out, what was once for Madame Bovary a search for romantic love is today encased in a framework of betrayal that is less about love and desire and more about symptoms in need of a cure. The symptom theory goes as follows. An affair simply alerts us to a pre-existing condition, either a troubled relationship or a troubled person. And in many cases, this holds true. Plenty of relationships culminate in an affair to compensate for a lack, to fill a void, or to set up an exit. Insecure attachment, conflict avoidance, prolonged lack of sex, loneliness, or just years of being stuck rehashing the same old arguments, many adulterers are motivated by marital dysfunction. And plenty has been written about trouble leading to trouble. However, therapists are confronted on a daily basis with situations that defy these well-documented reasons. How are we to interpret these? The idea that infidelity can happen in the absence of serious marital problems is hard to accept. Our culture does not believe in no-fault affairs. So when we can't blame the relationship, we tend to blame the individual instead. The clinical literature is rife with typologies for cheaters, as if character always trumps circumstance. Psychological jargon has replaced religious cant and sin has been eclipsed by pathology. We are no longer sinners, we are sick.
Ironically, it was much easier to cleanse ourselves of our sins than it is to get rid of a diagnosis. Strangely, clinical conditions have become a much coveted currency in the recovery from adultery market. Some couples arrive in my office with a diagnosis in hand. Brent is eager to don the mantle of pathology if it means finding an excuse for 20 years of gallivanting. His wife Joan is less enthusiastic and lets me know what she thinks about it. His therapist told him that he has an attachment disorder because his father abandoned him and left him alone to take care of his mother and his sister. But I tell him, you can't just be a pig anymore? You need a diagnosis? Jeff's wife Cheryl just discovered a slew of evidence that he has been cruising BDSM sites and meeting strangers for sex. An overlapping abbreviation of bondage and discipline, BD, dominance and submission, DS, sadism and masochism, SM. After many sessions with a therapist, Jeff is now convinced he is a sex addict who self-medicates his depression in the dungeon. His wife agrees, and indeed, it may be true. But medicalizing his behavior should not be used as a deflection from honesty, exploring the uneasy territory of his kinky predilections. It's easier to label than to delve. If psychological diagnoses are not convincing enough, there's always the booming world of popular neuroscience. Nicholas, whose wife Zoe had been having an affair for more than a year, looked visibly brighter when he arrived for our last session, brandishing the New York Times. Look, he pointed to the headlines, infidelity lurks in your genes. I knew that because of her parents' open marriage, her sense of morality is weaker. It's hereditary. There's no doubt that many renegade spouses do display signs of depression, compulsion, narcissism, attachment disorder, or plain sociopathy. Thus, at times, the right diagnosis finally lends clarity to an inexplicable and distressing behavior for both the person enacting it and for the person suffering the consequences. In those situations, it is a useful tool that helps to lay out a path to insight and recovery. But too often, when we jump to diagnosis too quickly, we short-circuit the meaning-making process. My experience has compelled me to look further, beyond the widespread view that infidelity is always a symptom of a flawed relationship or individual. The most readily apparent causality isn't always the accurate one. I learned this lesson when I wrote Mating in Captivity. I had always been told that sexual problems are the consequence of relationship problems and that if you fix the relationship, the sex will follow. While that was indeed the case for lots of couples, I was seeing countless others who kept telling me, we love each other very much. We have a great relationship, except for the fact that we have no sex. Clearly, their sexual impasse was not merely a symptom of a romance gone awry. We had to look in less obvious places for the roots of their erotic demise, which meant talking directly about sex, something couples therapists often prefer to avoid. Similarly, conventional wisdom would hold that good intimacy guarantees fidelity. 
Our model of romantic love assumes that if a union is healthy, there is no need to go looking elsewhere. If home is the place where you feel safe, seen, appreciated, respected and desired, why would you roam? In this view, an affair is de facto a product of a deficit. Accordingly, successful therapy aims to identify and heal the problems that caused the affair in the first place, so that the couple can live with a certificate of immunization in hand. But can this problem-solving approach neutralize the limits and intricacies of love? I don't think so. First, because it suggests that there is such a thing as a perfect marriage that will inoculate us against wanderlust. And second, because in session after session, I meet people who assure me, I love my wife, my husband. We are best friends and happy together, but I'm having an affair. Many of these individuals have been faithful for years, sometimes decades. They seem to be well-balanced, mature, caring men and women who are deeply invested in their relationships. Yet one day they cross a line they never imagined they would cross, risking everything they had built. For a glimmer of what? The more I listen to these tales of improbable transgression, from one-night stands to passionate love affairs, the more I find myself drawn to seek less obvious explanations. Why do happy people cheat? To this end, I encourage the unfaithful to tell me their stories. I want to understand what the affairs meant for them. Why did you do it? Why him? Why her? Why now? Was this the first time? Did you initiate? Did you try to resist? How did it feel? Were you looking for something? What did you find? All of these questions help me to probe the meanings and motives for the infidelities. People stray for a multitude of reasons, and every time I think I have heard them all, a new variation emerges. But one theme comes up repeatedly. Affairs as a form of self-discovery. A quest for a new or a lost identity. For these seekers, infidelity is less likely to be a symptom of a problem and is more often described as an expansive experience that involves growth, exploration, and transformation. Expansive, I can hear some people exclaiming. Self-discovery my ass. Sure, that sounds better than screwing around in a highway motel. Cheating is cheating. Whatever fancy New Age labels you want to put on it. It's cruel, it's selfish, it's dishonest, and it's abusive. Indeed, to the one who was betrayed, it can be all of these things. But what did it mean to the other? Once the initial crisis subsides, it is important to make space for exploring the subjective experience of affairs alongside the pain they can inflict. What for partner A may have been agonizing betrayal was transformative for partner B. Understanding why the infidelity happened and what it signified is critical both for couples who choose to end their relationship and for those who want to stay together, rebuild and revitalize theirs. In search of a new self Sometimes when we seek the gaze of another, 
It isn't our partner we're turning away from, but the person we have become. We are not looking for another lover so much as another version of ourselves. Mexican essayist Octavio Paz describes eroticism as a thirst for otherness. So often, the most intoxicating other that people discover in the affair is not a new partner. It's a new self. Priya's first letter was filled with confusion and distress. Most descriptions of troubled marriages don't seem to fit my situation, she began. Colin and I have a wonderful relationship. Three great kids, no financial stress, careers we love, great friends. He's a phenomenal work, fucking handsome, an attentive lover, fit and generous to everyone, including my parents. My life is good. Yet Priya is having an affair with the arborist who removed the tree that went through her neighbor's garage after Hurricane Sandy. Not someone I would ever date. Ever. 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 He drives a truck and has tattoos. It's so cliched, it pains me to say it out loud. Like the middle-aged boss and the hot young secretary. And it's dangerous. It could ruin everything I've built, which I don't want to do. My therapist is the only one who knows, and she told me to block his number and never talk to him again. I know she's right, and I've tried, but I keep coming back. She tells me about her experience half fascinated, half horrified. We have nowhere to go, so we are always hiding in his truck or my car, in movie theaters, on park benches, his hands down my pants. I feel like a teenager with a boyfriend. She can't emphasize enough the high school quality of it all. They have had sex only half a dozen times during the whole relationship. It's more about feeling sexy than having sex. And she's stuck in an all-too-common adulterer's dilemma. This cannot go on, but I can't stop it. Priya can't figure out why she's in this mess. She too has bought into the idea that this stuff happens only when there's something missing in the marriage. As she vaunts the merits of her conjugal life, however, I start to suspect that her affair is not about her husband or their relationship. To doggedly look for marital causes in cases like these is an example of what's known as the streetlight effect where the drunken man is searching for his missing keys not where he dropped them, but where the light is. Human beings have a tendency to look for things in the places where it is easiest to search for them, rather than in the places where the truth is more likely to be found. Perhaps this explains why many couples' therapists overwhelmingly subscribe to the symptom theory. This way they can focus on the familiar territory of the relationship rather than submerge themselves in the quagmire of transgression. It's easier to put the blame on a failed marriage than to grapple with the existential imponderables of our ambitions, our longings and our ennui. The problem is that unlike the drunkard whose search is futile, therapists can always find problems in a marriage. These just may not be the right keys to unlock the meaning of the affair. A forensic examination of Priya's marriage would surely yield something. Her disempowered position as the person who earns less. 
her tendency to repress anger and avoid conflict, the claustrophobia she sometimes feels, the gradual merging of two individuals into a we, so succinctly summarized in the phrase, did we like that restaurant? If she and I had taken that route, we might have had an interesting chat, but not the one we needed to have. The fact that a couple has issues doesn't mean that these issues led to the affair. I think this is about you, not your marriage, I suggest to Priya. So, tell me about yourself. I've always been good. Good daughter, good wife, good mother, dutiful, straight A's. Priya comes from an Indian immigrant family of modest means. For her, what do I want has never been separated from what do they want from me. She never partied, drank, or stayed out late, and she had her first joint at 22. After medical school, she married the right guy and even welcomed her parents into their home before buying them a retirement condo. At 47, she's left with the nagging question. If I'm not perfect, will they still love me? In the back of her mind, there is a voice that wonders what life is like for those who are not so good. Are they more lonely? More free? Do they have more fun? Priya's affair is neither a symptom nor a pathology. It's a crisis of identity, an internal rearrangement of her personality. In our sessions, we talk about duty and desire, about age and youth. Her daughters are becoming teenagers and enjoying a freedom she never knew. Priya is at once supportive and envious. As she nears the mid-century mark, she is having her own belated adolescent rebellion. These introspections may seem superficial, petty first-world problems. Priya has said as much herself. We both agree that her life is enviable, and yet she is risking it all. That's enough to convince me not to make light of it. My role is to help her make sense of her actions. It's clear that this is not a love story that was meant to become a life story, which some affairs truly are. This is an affair that started and will end as such, hopefully without destroying her marriage in the process. Secluded from the responsibilities of everyday life, the parallel universe of the affair is often idealized, infused with the promise of transcendence. For some, it is a world of possibility, an alternate reality in which we can reimagine and reinvent ourselves. Then again, it is experienced as limitless precisely because it is contained within the limits of its clandestine structure. It is a radiant parenthesis, a poetic interlude in the prose of life. Hence, forbidden love stories are utopian by nature, especially in contrast with the mundane constraints of marriage and family. A prime characteristic of this liminal universe, and the key to its irresistible power, is that it is unattainable. Affairs are, by definition, precarious, elusive and ambiguous. The indeterminacy, the uncertainty, the not knowing when I'll see you again, feelings we would never tolerate in our primary relationship, 
become kindling for anticipation in a hidden romance. Because we cannot have the lover, it ensures that we keep wanting, for we always want that which we cannot have. It is this just-out-of-reach quality that lends affairs their erotic mystique and ensures that the flame of desire keeps burning. Reinforcing this segregation of the affair from reality is the fact that many, like Priya, choose lovers who either could not or would not become a life partner. By falling for someone from a very different class, culture or generation, we play with possibilities that we would not entertain as actualities. Infidelity promises lives that could never be mine, as journalist Anna Pulley writes in a beautiful essay about her affair with a married woman. I was, she writes, a road she would never take. Ours was a love that hinged on possibility. What we could offer each other was infinite potential. Reality never stood a chance against that kind of promise. She represented a singular perfection. She had to because she contained none of the trappings of a real relationship. She was perfect in part because she was an escape. She seemed always to offer more. Interestingly, very few such affairs actually survive discovery. One would think that a relationship for which so much was risked would endure the transition into daylight. Under the spell of passion, lovers speak longingly of all the things they will be able to do when they are finally together. Yet when the prohibition is lifted, when the divorce comes through, when the sublime mixes with the ordinary and the affair enters the real world, what then? Some settle into happy legitimacy but many more do not. In my experience, most affairs end, even if the marriage ends as well. However authentic the feelings of love, the dalliance was only ever meant to be a beautiful fiction. The affair lives in the shadow of the marriage, but the marriage also lives in the center of the affair. Without its delicious illegitimacy, can the relationship with the lover remain enticing? If Priya and her tattooed beau had their own bedroom, would they be as giddy as in the back of his truck? I have met countless women and men like Priya. I acknowledge the power of their experience. I do not belittle it as petty, selfish or immature. Yet at the same time, I challenge the arrogance of lovers who feel that the epiphany of their connection has rendered everything else in their life blind. Falling in love, as Francesco Alberoni writes, rearranges all our priorities, throws the superfluous overboard, projects a glaring light onto what is superficial and instantly discards it. As I warn Priya, When the poetic flight comes crashing down, she is likely to realize that her prosaic life matters to her a great deal. The Seductive Power of Transgression No conversation about relationships can avoid the thorny topic of rules and our all-too-human desire to break them. Bucking the rules is an assertion of freedom over convention of possibility over constraints and of self over society. 
Priya may be mystified and mortified by how she is putting her marriage on the line. But that's precisely where the power of transgression lies. In risking the very things that are most dear to us. Acutely aware of the law of gravity, we dream of flying. The consequences can be transformative or destructive. And sometimes you cannot pull the two apart. Priya often feels like she's a walking contradiction, alternately dismayed by her reckless behavior, enchanted by her daredevil attitude, tormented by fear of discovery, and unable or unwilling to put a stop to it. Neuroscientists would no doubt explain that in her everyday life, she is following the rational commands of her frontal cortex, while in her affair, her limbic system is firmly in charge. From a psychological perspective, our relationship to the forbidden sheds a light on the darker and less straightforward aspects of our humanity. Transgression is at the heart of human nature. Moreover, as many of us remember from our childhood, there's a thrill in hiding, sneaking, being bad, being afraid of being discovered and getting away with it. As adults, we can find this a powerful aphrodisiac. The risk of being caught doing something naughty or dirty, the breaking of taboos, the pushing of boundaries, all of these are titillating experiences. As sexologist Jack Morin observes, most of us retain an urge from childhood to demonstrate our superiority over the rules. Perhaps, he suggests, this is why encounters and fantasies with a flavor of violation so often leave the violators with a sense of self-validation or even pride. Morin's now famous erotic equation states that attraction plus obstacles equal excitement. High states of arousal, he explains, flow from the tension between persistent problems and triumphant solutions. We are most intensely excited when we are a little of balance, uncertain, poised on the perilous edge between ecstasy and disaster. This insight into our human propensities helps to shed light on why people in happy, stable relationships are lured by the charge of transgression. For Priya, the question is bewitching. What if just this once I act as if the rules don't apply to me? While for some, breaking the rules is a long-deferred dream, for others, entitlement is a way of life. They simply assume they are above the rules. Their narcissism gives them license to breach all conventions. For them, infidelity is opportunism. They cheat with impunity simply because they can. Their grandiosity is the master narrative. All affairs are plots of entitlement. But I am particularly interested in the meaning of entitlement for those who have lived responsible, dutiful, committed lives. What does rebellion represent for these upstanding citizens? What are we to make of the self-contradictory nature of their trespasses when the constraints they are defying are the very ones they themselves created? Our conversations help Priya bring clarity to her confusing picture. 
She's relieved that we don't have to pick apart her relationship with Colin. But having to assume full responsibility leaves her heavy with guilt. The last thing I've ever wanted to do is hurt him. If he knew, he would be crushed. And knowing that it had nothing to do with him wouldn't make a difference. He would never believe it. Priya is at a crossroads. She could tell her husband about the affair, something many people would advise her to do, and then deal with the consequences. She could keep it a secret and end it, hoping he would never find out, or she could continue skating on parallel tracks for the time being. My concern with the first option is that, while I don't condone deception, I know that the moment the affair is revealed, the narrative will irrevocably switch. It will no longer be a story of self-discovery, but one of betrayal. I'm not sure what they have to gain from that. So what about the second option, quietly ending it? She has tried that several times, deleted his phone number, driven a different route back from dropping the kids at school, told herself how wrong this entire thing is. But the self-imposed cutoffs become new and electrifying rules to break. Three days later, the fake name is back in her phone. As for the third option, Priya's torment is mounting in proportion to the risks she's taking. She's beginning to feel the corrosive effects of the secret and getting sloppier by the day. Danger follows her to every movie theater and parking lot. Taking all of this into account, I hope to guide her toward a fourth option. What she's telling me in effect is, I need to end this, but I don't want to. What I can see, and she has not yet grasped, is that the thing she's really afraid to lose is not him. It's the part of herself that he awakened. You think you had a relationship with Truckman, I tell her. Actually, you had an intimate encounter with yourself mediated by him. The distinction between the person and the experience is crucial in helping people to extricate themselves from affairs. The extramarital excursion will end, but their souvenirs will go on traveling with them. I don't expect you to believe me right now, but you can terminate your relationship and keep what it gave you, I tell her. You reconnected with an energy, a youthfulness. I know that it feels as if in leaving him, you are severing a lifeline to all of that. But I want you to know that over time, you will find that some of this also lives inside of you. We discuss how to go about saying goodbye. The clean break hasn't worked because it emphasizes only the negative aspects and does not acknowledge the depth of the experience. Priya and her lover have also tried the slow and gentle approach, spending hours discussing how they should end it. I know how that kind of conversation goes. Couples spend entire nights planning their farewells, but wind up feeling closer and more connected in the face of their impending separation. I introduce a different kind of conversation, a proper goodbye that doesn't deny all the positives but holds the contradiction. I don't want to end this, yet that's what I came to do. 
She should express her gratitude for what their relationship has given her and tell him she will always cherish the memory of their time together. She asks me, I need to do it today, right? You'll have to do it many days, I tell her. You'll have to learn to extract yourself from him, and it won't be easy. Sometimes it will feel like a root canal. He's become such a presence in your life that when you don't see him, at first you'll walk around numb and empty. This is to be expected, and it may take time. In some situations, this process can be a matter of a single enlightening conversation. In others, it can take weeks or months before the meaning is metabolized and the affair can die a natural death having served its purpose. For Priya, I suspect it will be the latter. You'll have to force yourself not to text, call, follow, or drive by his house. You may slip on occasion, but one day it will stick. You will feel loss, you'll mourn, and gradually you'll come to accept it. You'll experience the relief of not being fragmented. And on occasion, when you think of him, you'll feel young again. Perhaps what I'm saying is true, and Priya will remember Truckman fondly. But I know it's equally possible that a year from now, she will look back at this episode and wonder, what the hell was I thinking? Was I mad? He may remain a beautiful flower in her secret garden, or she may see him as a weed. For now, suffice to say that giving her the permission to internalize him will help her let go. People often ask me, can a couple really experience an authentic, secure connection while one of them keeps such a secret? Doesn't it render the whole relationship false? I have no tidy answer to these questions. In many instances, I have worked toward revelation, hopeful that it will open up new channels of communication for the couple. But I've also seen a carelessly divulged secret leaving unfading scars. When I'm working with Priya, my focus is on getting her to own her experience and to deal with it in the most caring way possible. These days, my messages have replaced those of her lover on her WhatsApp thread. I act as something of a sponsor as she weans herself off his daily affirmation and gradually pursues her goal, which is to reintegrate her life. The Lure of Unlived Lives The quest for the unexplored self is a powerful theme of the adulterous narrative. Priya's parallel universe transported her to the teenager she never was. Others find themselves drawn by the memory of the person they once were. And then there are those whose reveries take them back to the missed opportunities, the ones that got away, and the person they could have been. As the eminent sociologist Zygmunt Baumann writes, in modern life there is always a suspicion that one is living a lie or a mistake, that something crucially important has been overlooked, missed, neglected, left untried and unexplored, that a vital obligation to one's own authentic self has not been met or that some chances of unknown happiness, 
completely different from any happiness experienced before have not been taken up in time and are bound to be lost forever if they continue to be neglected. He speaks directly to our nostalgia for unlived lives, unexplored identities and roads not taken. As children, we have the opportunity to play at other roles. As adults, we often find ourselves confined by the ones we've been assigned or the ones we have chosen. When we select a partner, we commit to a story, yet we remain forever curious. What other stories could we have been part of? Affairs offer us a window into those other lives, a peek at a stranger within. Adultery is often the revenge of the deserted possibilities. Duane had always cherished memories of his college sweetheart, Keisha. She was the best sex he'd ever had, and she still featured prominently in his fantasy life. They'd both known they were too young to commit and parted reluctantly. Over the years, he has often asked himself what would have happened had their timing been different. Enter Facebook. The digital universe offers unprecedented opportunities to reconnect with people who exited our lives long ago. Never before have we had so much access to our exes and so much fodder for our curiosity. Whatever happened to so-and-so? I wonder if she ever got married. I heard he was having difficulties in his relationship. Is she still as cute as I remember? The answers are a click away. One day, Dwayne searched for Keisha's profile. Lo and behold, they were both in Austin. She, still hot, was divorced. He, on the other hand, was happily married, but his curiosity got the better of him and ad friend soon turned into secret girlfriend. In the past decade, it seems to me that affairs with exes have proliferated thanks to social media. These retrospective encounters occupy a place somewhere between the known and the unknown, bringing together the familiarity of someone you once knew with the freshness created by the passage of time. The flicker with an old flame offers us a unique combination of building trust, risk-taking, and vulnerability. In addition, it is a magnet for our lingering nostalgia. The person I once was but lost is the person you once knew. We all have multiple selves, but in our intimate relationships over time, we tend to reduce our complexity to a shrunken version of ourselves. One of the essential components of recovery is finding ways to reintroduce the many pieces that were abandoned or exiled along the way. The Return of the Exiled Emotions while some people are surprised to discover that there are many parts to who they are, Ayo is well acquainted with his multiple selves. He has always defined, redefined, and developed himself through relationships, with friends, mentors, and intimate partners. I have layers or circles of friends corresponding to various stages of my life in different parts of the world, he tells me. Each one summons the person I was in the formative years of those relationships. I find it exhilarating to re-experience myself across life stages simply by choosing to spend time with one or the other circle of friends. In the past two years, however, 
the most influential person in Ayo's ongoing project of personal growth has been Cynthia, a fellow international development consultant. He describes their two-year affair as a vital developmental accelerator, propelling him into a new experience of himself. Ayo's infidelity tells a less well-known but not uncommon tale about men. There's a certain type of guy who has spent his life on the tough side of the emotional spectrum, fearless and always in control. For Ayo, who grew up in Kenya and moved around several times during a turbulent childhood, this strategy made sense. I seemed to want many of the good bits of love, the warmth, the protection, the caring, the friendship and the romance, but not the leaky parts, the vulnerability, the weakness, the fear and the sadness, he reflects. His wife Julie offered him just that. They met in London 27 years ago when both were embarking on careers in the same field. She was beautiful, exceptionally smart, athletic, and neither overly introspective nor fragile, which suited me. Five children followed, with Julie deciding to leave her career and raise their brood while Ayo continued to travel the world. Their marriage was a happy one. It was, as Ayo described it, premised on respectful extramarital liberty. A liberty he had taken multiple times over the years, enjoying casual encounters in every time zone. Julie turned a blind eye to his sidesteps, as she called them. They took some of the pressure off of me, and even had a brief affair herself, which she told her husband about. Ayo first encountered Cynthia through her writings and taught them brilliant, her voice enchanting, funny, genuine and wise. When they met in person, she was all of that and also elegant and graceful. We tumbled in love, he says, meeting through work and writing endless letters to each other, thousands of pages over the past two years. Their relationship had many facets, deep professional respect, creative partnership, intellectual camaraderie, erotic passion, and humor. Initially, Ayo and Cynthia planned to tell their respective spouses, hoping that the flexible boundaries that characterized both marriages would stretch to include their connection. But they knew this relationship was more serious than any previous fling and was likely to test the limits of our spouses' tolerance. Before they could follow through with this plan, life intervened in the form of a cancer diagnosis for Cynthia. The decision to tell went out the window, as did any remaining boundaries. I jumped right into her life and spent as much time with her as I could, Ayo recalls. I fell deeper and deeper in love. For the first time, I allowed myself to be afraid, to be sad. Ayo describes getting in touch with emotions that had always been suppressed, finding a new curiosity, empathy, and tolerance for uncertainty. Always self-reflective, he sums it up as follows. I acquired a level of literacy in the emotional space that I had lacked. This softer man appeared also in his lovemaking, more playful, more balanced, and less driven by outcomes. When Julie found out about Cynthia, 
Ayo still held out hope that she might shrug it off as she had his past adventures and accept it as part of a new polyamorous agreement. To his surprise and dismay, the opposite occurred. She sank in agony. When he wrote asking for a couple session, he was trying to find a way out of their impasse. The fact is that I love Julie, he wrote. Her boundless physical energy, her unquestioned commitment to our marriage and family, her invulnerability, her thoughtfulness, her well-grounded certainties, and her rich bedrock of values. We have a lot in common that will keep us interested well into old age. And the fact is that I am in love with Cynthia. Her grace, her exquisite emotional intelligence, her brilliance, her vulnerability, her ontological uncertainties and her complexity of mind. I love the way I show up with her as my biggest self. So different parts of me pull in opposite directions. With both of them in my life, I have felt like the most fortunate man ever. By the time we meet, Ayo has reluctantly ended the sexual side of his relationship with Cynthia, but he insists on continuing their creative collaboration, something Julie is deeply unhappy about. He tells me honestly that he's considering several options. Part of him hopes that I can convince Julie to allow him to have both his marriage and his affair. Another part of him hopes I will straighten him up and shake him out of his delusions so he can focus solely on his marriage. Yet another part wonders if this crossroads is meant to take him into a new life and hopes I can help him face the implications. He doesn't know which outcome we should be working toward. Julie, meanwhile, wants to make sense of the irresistible pull Cynthia exerts on Ayo and the intensity of her own response. Why did this hit you differently than his previous flings, I ask her. We are familiar with the story of the middle-aged man who takes up with a young beauty and the wife's feelings of inadequacy by comparison. For Julie, however, young beauties had never been a problem. Not feeling threatened by them, I decided to ignore them, she says. But Cynthia was a kick in the gut, a professional, accomplished woman. She was the same age as Julie and had excelled in the field Julie had walked away from decades earlier to devote herself to motherhood. As I listen to her, it begins to fall into place why this revelation plunged her into such despair. Her husband did not just fall in love with another woman. He fell for the woman Julie could have been. Cynthia does not just represent some new part of Ayo that he is discovering. She also represents everything his wife gave up. It could have been Julie working at his side, sharing his passions and celebrating their successes together. She chose differently and there is no going back for her. Meanwhile, he has the option of doing a take-two. For the first time in our session, contemplating her lost self, her reserve cracking, Julie begins to cry. When our meeting ends, both she and Ayo are facing very uncomfortable and new developmental thresholds, to use a term that Ayo would appreciate. Can he bring his newfound empathy to his wife rather than just being surprised she's hurt? 
And can she go beyond her stoic attitude and show her underbelly? How can she create a new sense of purpose? One of the options Ayo had not included in his menu of possible outcomes was the creation of a fresh emotional vocabulary between him and Julie. If fear, sadness and vulnerability can be introduced into their sanctuary, they might encounter new selves in places they never expected. At the end of our single day-long session, I leave them considering this possibility. It is real-life dramas like these that highlight for me the limitations of the symptom theory. Infidelity needs to be seen not simply as a pathology or a dysfunction. We must lend a careful ear to the emotional resonance of transgressive experiences, as well as to their fallout. Otherwise, we perpetuate the compartmentalization that undergirded the affair itself. We leave the couple at risk of sinking back into the status quo. Untangling the meanings of the affair sets the stage for all the decisions that will follow. Too much is at stake to spend precious time searching for our keys in all the wrong places.